0: tonight the last two verses of the letter or the book of James. Tonight we conclude our series of sermons on James, 16 in all. The New Testament's only book of wisdom and the book that more than any other is directly dependent upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, James's elder brother. Throughout this little book, in a variety of ways, James has, as the Old Testament wisdom literature also regularly does, he has reminded us of our obligations for others. Before the God who commanded us to love our neighbor as much as, or if not more, than we love ourselves, our lives are going to be judged by the extent to which we have actually done that or aspired to do that. And it is with this subject once more that he concludes his letter or his book a loving interest in others, especially brethren Here he considers one particular obligation we have for one another, one among the many he has already mentioned, one among the many more he might have mentioned. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back... Now, the Christian term of art, for what James describes here, is backsliding to describe it as wandering from the truth captures the idea that it is a somewhat thoughtless and careless departure and more gradual than sudden or precipitate. To wander from the truth doesn't necessarily mean that the person has come to believe untruths, only that he or she is no longer living according to the truth the truth is no longer commanding his or her steps his or her behavior every day here as throughout James truth and life go together truth and faith go together and the authentic Christian life is only that life lived in keeping with the truth that God has revealed in his word And of course, anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time has observed this phenomenon. A convert, or a covenant child now grown up, begins to lose interest. The interest he or she once had. The edge on his or her Christian commitment is dulled. And so, his Christian life Her Christian life changes in ways that family and friends and church cannot help but notice. Things are being said and done that would not have been said or done before and perhaps more noticeably things that once were said and once were done are no longer. The person is not an apostate If he or she were, there would be no coming back, no bringing back. He has not denied the faith. She has not said that she no longer believes in the gospel or the salvation of Jesus Christ. But his or her condition is dangerous precisely because backsliding can become full-blown apostasy. In the previous verses, the believer is described as having a problem, sickness or sin, and encouraged to ask for help. Here, the believer, in almost all cases, does not recognize that he or she has a spiritual problem, a serious problem. So, another Christian needs to help without being asked. The word translated brings back was rendered convert in the King James Version. If one convert him. The same word is found in Luke 22 verse 32 where the Lord assured Peter after prophesying that he was going to backslide, that he had prayed for him that his faith would not fail and then said to him when you are converted strengthen your brethren. The ESV has when you have turned again the if anyone backslides then and someone brings him back suggests that this is hardly the duty of only ministers and elders but belongs to us all as Christians my brothers if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. To say that his sins will be covered means that God will treat them as if they had never been. Remember David in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity but his or her sins will not be covered unless the person is brought back to the life of faith Peter says a somewhat similar thing in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 8 above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins itself a loose citation of Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses there the thought is that when we love others, we will be quick to conceal their moral failures and to extend willing forgiveness to them. That's a like, but it's not an identical thought to what James gives us here. In any case, the letter aim, uh, ends with James telling us that in addition to our being doers of the word and not hearers only, We are to do our best to ensure that other Christians are as well. The letter ends abruptly. No greetings, no blessing, no personal details, such as we find at the end of Paul's letters. In this, it is more like 1 John than it is an epistle of Paul. You remember how 1 John ends. Keep yourselves from idols, period. It is one more reason to think, as we suggested way back in our very first sermon that James may be composed of selections from sermons that James preached on various occasions. So far the Word of God. Now the letter concludes with James urging us to do what he himself has been doing throughout the letter. Urging those of us who have in one way or another wandered a bit from the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to walk who are not in some respect living according to the truth as it has been revealed in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God to return to that narrow way to walk as becomes the followers of Jesus Christ now there's a long-standing debate about whose salvation James is talking about and whose sins are covered the pronouns are as ambiguous in Greek as they are in English. Is it the one who brings the wanderer back or is it the wanderer himself or herself? Origen, the brilliant early church father for example, understood James to mean a man who converts others will have his own sins forgiven. On the contrary I think if we had to choose between those two, two interpretations, I would certainly believe that the soul that is saved and the sins that are covered are those of the backslider. Clearly his is the soul that must be saved from death, so equally his must be the sins that are covered. On the other hand, I'm not sure we have to choose between the alternatives. When Paul urges Timothy to watch his faith and doctrine closely, for by them he will save both himself and his hearers, it becomes possible to think that James' way of speaking is intentionally ambiguous. Both are saved, and the sins of both are covered when a Christian recovers another Christian from backsliding. The Lord Jesus, you remember, in somewhat similar teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which James... Which teaching James has referred to, the Sermon on the Mount, again and again and again in a short letter. Jesus says only that if we forgive our neighbor's sins, our own sins will be forgiven. And if we do not forgive the sins of our neighbor, our own sins will not be forgiven. Everywhere in the Bible, what good we do for others is good as well for us what kindness and faithfulness we show to others proves as well a blessing for ourselves in keeping the commandments of God there is a great reward and many of those commandments concern our obligations for our neighbor Christian or not but it's a sad fact of life that you and I are encountering every day and find so often in our own hearts that we tend, that human beings tend, to delight in the sins of others rather than to be concerned about them. Rather than covering a fault, they tend, we tend, perhaps in many cases secretly, to find some satisfaction in the errors, the falls, the moral failures of others. We're vain creatures and the failures of others seem to lower them in comparison with ourselves and of course we're thinking about everything in terms of ourselves and if something including the moral failure of another human being can be thought in some way to benefit ourselves we welcome that moral failure in fact it is by far the easiest way to think better of yourself to see others as worse and their failures enable us to do that to credit ourselves with some moral superiority Paul may have said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but that only demonstrates how little love there actually is in the world on the other hand as is always the case People know very well that they ought to cover the faults of others. They ought not to rejoice in someone else's failure. Proof of that comes, as it always does, in two parts. First, they are very quick to cover the faults of those they love, those they admire, those who are in some way connected to themselves. To find excuses for their faults, to forgive their sins, quickly to forget them. We are given innumerable examples of this in our national life. The standard-bearer of our political party, the presidential candidate we favor, can do all manner of stupid or even nefarious things, and we are very ready to deny any wrongdoing or to excuse or to extenuate it or to blame those who have pointed it out rather than face the fact of the lie or the flip-flop or the doubtful ethics. Second, we certainly want other people to excuse or mitigate or cover or hide our faults our failures. Human beings are by nature inclined not to care for the reputation or the well-being of other people who are in no way connected to us, whose life does not in any important way impinge upon or reflect upon our lives. But we care about our own reputations and we care about the reputations of people who are in some fashion connected to ourselves. People who are genuinely concerned for others all the more when they receive no benefit themselves for demonstrating that concern are decidedly rare. That's simply a fact of life. I was reminded of this last week in reading an article that completely reversed what I had always thought to be the truth about a famous human being. Ty Cobb, as many of you will know, any baseball fan will know, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. He still has the highest lifetime batting average of any player. The first player to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But as we all know, he was a despicable man, a racist from Georgia. It is said he would often whip any black man he passed on the sidewalk. It was common knowledge that he slid into bases with his spikes up. Indeed, it was said that he sharpened his spikes, uncaring if he hurt another player so long as he gained that extra base. It was said that when children wrote to Cobb asking for an autographed picture, Cobb would steam the stamps off the return envelope and never write back. It is even thought that he had murdered as many as three people. As I read that article, I realized that that last piece of information should have raised red flags a long time ago. A famous baseball player who somehow or another got away with murdering three people? Really? A 1995 film entitled Cobb, starring Tommy Lee Jones, gave us this picture of Ty Cobb, a morally reprobate successful athlete. Ken Burns' documentary, Baseball, gave us the same picture of Ty Cobb if you ever saw the movie Field of Dreams you may remember that Cobb wasn't invited to play in the Iowa cornfield because none of the other players who came back had liked him during his career. But Charles Learson, a journalist from New York, a sometime editor of Sports Illustrated, for years a senior writer at Newsweek, who has written for most of America's major organs of opinion and commentary set out to write a new book about the baseball star. He was interested and thought he could sell the idea to a publisher, which he could. He knew he was a despicable man, but he also knew no serious research had ever been done on Ty Cobb and he thought the world would welcome a new biography with even juicier details Proving how monstrous a human being Ty Cobb actually was. But as soon as he began doing his research, reading old newspaper and magazine articles, the picture of Ty Cobb that he had been given, that we all have been given, began to disintegrate. Was he widely hated? the Chicago White Sox, who weren't even his team, once gave him an award, a set of books, because everybody knew that Cobb was a voracious reader. He was also fun to be around. When Cobb's Detroit Tigers came to town, Ring Lardner, Chicago's famous sports writer, would buy a cheap seat in the outfield so he could spend the game bantering with Ty Cobb. Did he steal stamps from children? Letters in museums and private collections proved that he responded generously to young fans sometimes with handwritten letters that ran to five pages. And he always told them that he was honored by their requests for an autograph. What about his racism? Ken Burns called Cobb an embarrassment to the game and described him as the anti-Jackie Robinson. But all the supposed evidence for that evaporated under not careful and close examination, but under any examination. The stories that were told had either been made up out of whole cloth or had nothing to do with African-Americans. Cobb was, in fact, descended from a long line of abolitionists. His great-grandfather was a preacher who preached against slavery in Georgia and was run out of town for doing so. His grandfather refused to fight in the Confederate army because of the slavery issue. His father was an educator and a state senator who was beloved by his black constituency and is known for having once broken up a lynch mob. When interviewed about integration in baseball in 1952, the first time anybody knows he was ever asked about the question, he'd been long since retired, he said that black players should be accepted wholeheartedly, not grudgingly, and that they had an absolute right to play in the big leagues. He had attended many Negro League games himself, sometimes throwing out the first ball and often sitting in the dugout with the players. He was a particular and public admirer of Willie Mays and Roy Campanella, two of the early black major leaguers. He was certainly not a perfect man. He had a hair-trigger temper, didn't suffer fools gladly, and was too intolerant of players who didn't work as hard as he did. He wasn't himself a natural athlete. He had to work hard to be as good as he was but he wasn't a racist and he didn't try to injure other players. In fact, as Learson continued his research he discovered that opposing players universally respected Ty Cobb and did not fear him. As one catcher who had to face Cobb sliding home said, he never cut me up. He was too pretty a slider to hurt anyone who put the ball on him right. A teammate called him a game square fellow who never cut a man with his spikes intentionally in his life. Rearson could not find a player from Cobb's era who thought he was a dirty player. Everyone said he was not. So where did Cobb's terrible reputation come from? Reerson finally concluded that it came from a man named Al Stump, a hack writer who had been fired from newspapers before for making up stories. According to Stump who needed sensation to sell his book about Cobb, a book that came out after Cobb's death, he was so universally hated that only three people came to his funeral. Not true. Not true at all. The family had put word out that the service was to be private, but four of his closest friends from baseball did attend, and thousands of people filled the church and lined the route to the cemetery. Sports writers rushed to Cobb's defense when Stump's book was published, but to no avail. People wanted it to be true, and so the story lived on, being repeated by one journalist or filmmaker after another. As Learson put it, I knew going into this project, having been at one time an editor at People magazine, that human beings take delight in the fact that the rich and famous are often worse and more miserable than they are. What I didn't understand before was the power of repetition to bend the truth. Now I give all of that to you simply to remind you of both how disinterested we can be in the lives of others and how easy it is for us to dismiss others on the one hand and on the other how differently a Christian ought to think about others than unbelievers so regularly do. When I read that article the first thing I felt was shame. I was ashamed of myself True enough, I hadn't the time or the opportunity or the interest. No one could have expected me to investigate the life of Ty Cobb myself to find out what the truth about this one baseball player was. But I remember myself often thinking and saying that he was a despicable man, repeating, in other words, the lies that other people had told about him. I think as a Christian I should at least have known enough to say I've heard that some think him to have been a despicable man, but I don't know myself whether he was or not. Even better, I should have both thought and said, well, we're all despicable men. If Ty Cobb was all the things people have said he was, so am I, with less excuse. But no, I glibly repeated a despicable man's lies about a man who was not at all despicable in the ways people were led to believe. When I finished the article I was angry at myself for allowing myself to be so easily duped, to be drawn in to character assassination, to cooperate with a sort of utter carelessness toward other people the kind of contempt for others that sort of contempt that is dominating our election season here in the United States and if there was less of it there would be considerably less of it in the world there was less of it among us considerably less of it in the world and I suspect considerably more interest in Christianity James isn't to be sure talking about ruining a man's reputation to sell books, but he is talking about the obligation of believers to want the best for others. To believe the best and to hope for the best in the case of others. To work to bless them and to help them, to protect them, and of the importance God Himself attaches to our exercising real love for our neighbors we of all people in the world should be the anti al stump in spades if love is supposed to cover a man's faults as proverbs says it is obviously it will not ruin a man's reputation the Lord could ruin our reputations a thousand times over until everyone thought us despicable people and he wouldn't have to tell lies only the whole terrible truth but in love he covers our faults more than that love will strive to make a person better to keep him from getting worse to protect him even from himself what we're given here in the last two verses of James is but one example of how we ought to care for others how their lives ought to be important to us how we ought to be willing to take action on their behalf. Unless we fail to appreciate how important that kind of love and care can be in the life of someone else, James here uses this extravagant language, saying that we will save his soul from death. Al Stump was so little in saving Ty Cobb's soul that he damned the man to make a buck. But we, you and I, are to be in the salvation business. Rescuing people not only from others, but even from themselves. Now, A statement like that can bother us. How can we save a person? And even more, how can we save a person who's already saved? Well, clearly James is talking instrumentally. He knew, of course, that only God can save sinners, that ultimately salvation is and must be of the Lord. As Jonah reminds us, he knew that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. He knew that the word of God in the mouth of a Christian has no power to save a soul or even to bring him back unless God grants it that power. But God uses means, and one of those means is the loving interest of other Christians they're speaking the truth in love their faithful bird dogging of a backsliding saint their refusal to let him or her remain unmolested as he or she wanders from the straight and narrow way in the same way while it is absolutely true that a person who has been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit who has had implanted in his heart the imperishable seed of the word in whom God has begun a good work I say it is absolutely true that that person will be found in heaven at the end of the day but as the Bible makes perfectly clear repeatedly clear in a hundred different ways that person will not be saved no matter what Means are essential to the completion of salvation of anyone, and James is talking here about means. We tend to think that since it is true that once a person is saved, he or she must always be saved, there shouldn't be any need to say that we, of all people, must bring the sinner back lest he not be saved. But there is need to say it, and so the Bible says it times without number. In Hebrews we read that unless we persevere in faith no matter how we began we will not be saved. And everywhere we are commanded to help one another persevere. That's what James is talking about. Helping another to persevere in faith. Hebrews 10, 23 to 27 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Don't backslide. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works helping others not to backslide for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth or he or she does your friend there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment the bible's most famous illustration of this phenomenon saved people then being saved by the counsel and instruction of another, is the storm and shipwreck of the Apostle Paul recounted in Acts 27. You remember the story, the ship upon which Paul was being taken to Rome for his case to be heard by Caesar was caught in a great storm and driven for days before the wind The sailors did everything humanly possible to save the ship, lightening it by casting the cargo overboard, but they were helpless before the winds, and for two weeks they were driven relentlessly across the Mediterranean Sea. They were without food, and finally they were without hope. Then Paul rose to tell them that an angel of the Lord had appeared to him and had assured him that there would be no loss of life do not be afraid Paul the angel had said you must stand before Caesar and behold God has granted you all those who sail with you shortly thereafter the sailors realized from their soundings that they were nearing land and fearing that the ship would be dashed to pieces against the rocks they cast anchors to try to keep the the ship at sea. Then some sailors launched the ship's boat on the pretext of laying some more anchors, but they were actually hoping to escape the ship and make it safely to land. So Paul said to the centurion in charge of the ship's company, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the ropes were cut away, The ship's boat was let go empty, and in time, everyone made it safely to shore. Now, the sailors, had they been theologically minded, might have said to Paul, wait a minute, you said that God promised that all on the ship would be saved. How can you say now that if we don't remain on the ship, we will be lost And so will the others who remain on the ship. Was God's word true the first time, or was it not? But of course, God's word was true, and proved to be true. Everyone made it safely ashore. But it came to be true through the warning that Paul gave, and the action that was taken on the basis of that warning. God, of course, knows not only who will be saved, but how he and she will be saved. By what means? By what interventions? By what friends speaking truth into his or her life? Lots of people start the Christian faith and don't finish it. The Bible is candid about that. The Lord told parables all about that. And though God certainly knows, we cannot tell among those who profess the Christian faith and who begin to live the Christian life who have been truly and permanently renewed by the Holy Spirit. But we do know what spiritual safety requires. By God's own plan and purpose, it requires constant attention to the life of faith, not only by the believer himself or herself, but by other Christians on his or her behalf. James assumes that here, as it is everywhere assumed in the Bible, and so... He doesn't hesitate to say that by seeking and recovering a wandering brother or sister, we will save his or her soul. We'll keep him or her in the boat so that he or she can make it safely to the shore. That we can have such a role in someone's life that we, you and I, can be thought to save a soul, to cover his or her sins is meant to solemnize us, make us determined to care for others in this way, to protect them, to bring them back when they wander away. We began this series pointing out that one of the most interesting features of James' letter is that more than any other book of the New Testament it reproduces the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself, sometimes virtually word for word by the mid-forties when James was written and before the Gospels were written or at least written in their present form people knew Christians knew what Jesus had said how he had taught the Christian faith and life and James who had not been one of his disciples during the ministry and so it may be supposed had not been present in most cases when the Lord delivered his famous teaching had since learned it from those who had been present and learned it inside and out word for word so much so that commentators say that James seems to have absorbed the Lord's teaching and the wording of that teaching so completely that it was almost always hovering at the edge of his thoughts. James, of course, was not your typical backslider, though we can't really say. We know little enough about his home life growing up with Jesus as his elder brother, Mary as his mother. We don't know how old he would have been when his father Joseph died, but given Mary's piety, her knowledge of the identity of her son, we know it was a devout home. But devout or not, James did not recognize the truth as it was embodied in Jesus before him day after day and as his mother taught it to him when he was a boy and growing up. We can't tell from the little information we are given in the Gospels the extent to which James actually rebelled against his mother and his brother how hostile he was to Jesus and his teaching, how far he had wandered, in other words. But we do know that he was no follower of Jesus during the days of the Lord's ministry. That must have been a heartbreak for his mother, but such as it is. Knowing Mary as we know her, we can well imagine that she spent many long nights praying for James And for her other children, so far as we know, none of whom was a believer during the Lord's ministry. So I can't help but wonder if James was thinking about himself when he wrote verses 19 and 20. Did the great man finish his letter with a piece of personal history turned into personal application? Was he thinking of himself as the wanderer, as the one who had been brought back? We know from the Apostle Paul's remarks in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Lord Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, some days after it appears. And that 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 appearance, apparently, was what brought James back, saved his soul, and covered that great multitude of his sins. As in so much else, the best example of the life of true faith and goodness is always the Lord's own. Was James honoring his brother, his Lord and Savior, by finishing his letter with these two verses? As if having quoted at length the Lord Jesus in his letter, he concluded by pointing us to him and urging us not only to obey his teaching, but to follow his example. An example that must have been precious to James, who found his way back onto the narrow road that leads to life because his brother came after him and brought him back. The Lord Jesus, you remember, did the same for Peter. After Peter's failure in the courtyard of the high priest, the night of the Lord's betrayal, Jesus the day of his resurrection went looking for Peter also to assure his disciple that he was forgiven and to teach him and to teach us that if and when his disciples wander from the narrow road there will always be an on-ramp by which to return to it. I suppose all of us who are serious Christians hope and pray that we will be instrumental in bringing someone to faith in Christ and eternal life. Surely there can be no accomplishment so momentous in human life as that. But here we are reminded that bringing back the wanderer, the backslider, is a work of the same kind and to the same effect. It, too, represents the saving of the soul, the greatest thing, the noblest thing that any human being can be said to have done for another our worst disappointments in life are always our own sins so let's all of us look for opportunities to cover a multitude of sins both ours and those of others and in this case we kill those two magnificent birds with one stone I guarantee you Nothing will give your, yourself greater satisfaction in this life and nothing will count for more on the day of judgment. Amen.